This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, uh, we have uh, with us uh, one of the foremost uh, scholars, philosophers, and public intellectuals in the world, writing about a topic that's very close to us, I think, every day, uh, where history matters for us every day, which is how we think about memory and the ways in which memories of the past, particularly memories of a traumatic guilt-ridden, difficult past, the ways those memories are used or not used to improve or limit our democracy. In other words, what is the role for historical memory in addressing past injustices? Uh, Susan Nyman, who is our guest today, Susan has written some of the most important work on this. Uh, She is the director of the Einstein Forum in Berlin. She was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and that's central to a lot of her work. Uh, But she studied philosophy at Harvard and the Freie Universität in Berlin, was a professor of philosophy at Yale and Tel Aviv University before moving to Berlin, moving back to Berlin for the Einstein Forum. She's the author of numerous books uh, of contemporary philosophy uh, and political philosophy as well. Uh, A number that I'd just like to mention, Evil and Modern Thought. Uh, particularly relevant perhaps to our world today. Moral Clarity, a guide for grown-up idealists. Uh, I'm not sure I'm a grown-up idealist, but it you, at least gives one a guide. You probably are if, you, if you're doing this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. That makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> uh, and her most recent book, the book that's really going to be at the center of our discussion today, which is really a phenomenal book. Both Zachary and I have read it, uh, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. It has just come out in paperback with a brand new a final section, uh, at least for now, on the Black Lives Matter movement and how it relates to Susan's really in-depth discussion of historical memory in Germany and the United States over the last century. Uh, Susan, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Before we turn to our discussion, as always, we have our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri, and today's poem uh, is actually a bilingual poem from Zachary. This is the first uh, of your bilingual poems in 120 or so, I think, Zachary. Uh, what is the title of your poem? Herbst, ich erinnere mich, or Fall, I Remember. Let's hear it. Fall, I remember. You sneak up on us from behind the orchard fence. You seem cold and distant until the signs at the gas station begin to freeze. Herbst, ich erinnere mich an dich, der alte Mann in dem Supermarkt mit kaltem Haar, zwischen geöffnet und geschlossen Hoffnung. Fall, I remember you like a blessing, a prayer for the lost souls in tandem with the damp leaves trodden underfoot. The air is burning now. The earth is burning. The fires are so hot they feel as if they could be frozen. Und dann von hinter der Regalen hat ein Mann deinen Arm berührt. And then, from behind the shelves, a man has touched your arm. He is memory. Er ist die Erinnerung. And there are the eyes of your underlings and the eyes of the mistreated ones and the eyes of your fathers and your mothers and your great-great forgotten ones. Es gibt die Schuld deines Land. There is the guilt of your country. Es gibt die Schuld deiner Hand. There is the guilt of your hand. Wie kommt das Ende der Geschichte mit dem Ende der Erinnerung? Wie kommt das Ende der Erinnerung mit dem Ende der Zeit? Wie kommt das Ende der Schuld mit Erbst, mit Zärtlichkeit? That, that was really uh, powerful, Zach. Very powerful. 
I think you should translate that last section for us and, and, and tell us what your poem's about. Uh, well, so I'll answer the, the, the latter question first. So my poem is really about, um, is really about uh, how we think about historical memory and, and, and guilt. And it's particularly about uh, this moment we find ourselves in, in the fall of, of 2020, uh, right before the presidential election, sort of thinking about our history and, and how it's going to affect our future. And the last six lines of the poem in German translate roughly as, how does the end of history come with the end of memory? How does the end of memory come with the end of time? How does the end of guilt come with fall, with tenderness? It evokes a little bit of T.S. Eliot, right? Uh, not with a not with a bang, but with a whimper. Well, I was also thinking, Zachary. I don't know if you know. There's a fairly well-known poem of Rilke. I don't n- know its title anymore, but it starts with "Es ist Herbst." It's fall. Do you know that? Um, I think I may have come across it, but I was definitely going more T.S. Eliot. But okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah I prefer T.S. Eliot to Rilke myself, actually. But but that the, the his Sapst poem is a good poem. It is. I, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that, Susan. I, I read it years ago. I'm going to go back and find it when when we're done, uh, and maybe put it up on the on the website with the link to your book. That's really really wonderful. Uh, Susan, building on Zachary's poem uh, and the sort of haunting elements of memory, uh, maybe you can take us through a little bit about why you wrote this book, Learning from the Germans. Uh, it's, it's, it's a deep, thoughtful, intellectual book, but it's also a very personal book, which I loved. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's not an academic book, um, although I'm, sometimes I call myself a recovering philosophy professor, but um, (laughs) um, it's, it's written, much of it's written in the first person. It also contains a lot of interviews. I I thought it was very important, not just to have my voice in, uh, in the book, but also to have the voices of many, many people, both in, uh, in Germany and in the deep South, which is where I focused my research Uh, not because I believe racism is only a problem in the deep South, I should you know, emphasize, but because uh, the South works like a magnifying glass for the rest of the country. Everything is out in the open. And, you know, you certainly can't say that people aren't concerned with their history. But let me go back to, uh, there's a certain, this book has two beginnings, actually. Um, One was in the fall of 1982, when I first came to Berlin on a Fulbright Fellowship, thinking I was going to stay for a year and go back. And uh, the reason I didn't go back was that I became absolutely fascinated with this German concept of Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, which I translate as working through the past. It's it, Germans like long compound words, um, yes. <laughs> right? But it's not a concept that exists in any other language. And, um, you know, there's a sense in which it simply uh, emerged as a way of saying, what the hell are we going to do about the Nazis? Uh, and Coming to Berlin in 1982, I was absolutely struck by the ways in which people were talking about the Nazi past. It was just before the 50th anniversary of the Nazi takeover power, and people in Berlin were preparing for uh, to commemorate it with a year's worth of exhibits and discussions and uh, theater and people doing the research uh, about their neighborhoods and what their neighborhoods were like in the Third Reich. I should say this was at the time not at all a government-sponsored project, and it wasn't even a majority um, 
of certainly not a majority of Berlin of Germans and not even a majority of uh, Berliners who have always leaned somewhat to the left of the country. But those were the people that I would have normally graduate, uh, gravitated to, that is intellectuals, artists, activists, and they were examining their country's history, which also meant their parents and their teachers' complicity, with an intensity that I immediately had to ask, why aren't we doing this in the United States? And at the time, I wasn't even thinking very far back about our history. I was thinking, we don't talk about the Vietnam War anymore. Um, we've never really talked about Hiroshima. Um, and that was the moment when I began to think about um, the contrast between the ways in which Americans dealt with their history and or don't and what the Germans were doing with theirs. So it's a subject that I've been thinking about for, you know, more than you know, 35 years. Um, and the immediate impetus to writing the book was when I was watching President Obama give the eulogy for the nine uh, churchgoers massacred in Charleston in 2015, and in tears uh, from yes, my yeah. Berlin apartment, and thinking, however, because, uh, you know, Nikki Haley did take down the flag. It was the first time that, a, you know, major national politician had called for dealing with or getting rid of Confederate symbols. And I thought, gosh, America is finally beginning a Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. And since this is something I'm, I've thought about for a long time, maybe I can make a contribution. But I, uh, I didn't want to simply do it from afar. I had a sabbatical coming to me from my institute, and I wanted to spend some time with their, you know, even in 2016, there were Americans looking at this history, um, particularly around questions of racial reconciliation. So I based myself for a year in Mississippi, um, following people around who were doing this work as well as people who were absolutely opposed to it uh, as a way of trying to figure out what would be a genuinely American Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung working off the past. I do believe we have things to learn from what the Germans have done with their history, including their mistakes, and there have been many. Um, uh, I don't think any two countries' histories are the same. And the first chapter of the book talks about all the differences between, um, you know, American and German history, because I knew, of course, people would object immediately. Um, so, I, I, of course, there are many differences in those two histories. You're a historian. So, you know, um, it, you know it's important to care about cultural and, and historical differences. But I still think there are lessons. Well, and I have to say, I first became aware of your book. It had just come out, and, and I think I had read a review of it, but I was at a meeting of the World War II Museum, uh, the National World War II Museum in New Orleans, where I'm on, on the board, and uh, we were talking about memories of World War II, and it, was, it became so evident to me as we were planning a conference on World War II memory um, how little Americans had thought critically uh, about our own war experience. And that's in no way to trash the experience of the United States in World War II, but how much more advanced uh, German thinking was on this. And this is, this is a theme that resonates, I think, in your book. Why is it 
that around many of these issues, the Germans have seemingly done more thinking about this, more of the work of addressing the the dark and embarrassing and traumatic parts of their history than Americans. Why is that? Well, there's several several reasons for, uh, you know, one can give several reasons. One is, I don't know if it's okay to swear on your, on your podcast or not. Go ahead. Okay. I, I, I was actually, I was in a, in a radio uh, program in, of all places, the Bay Area, and I used a slightly profane uh, expression, and the, the moderator apologized to her audience, so you never know. Um, but I'm quoting here James Meredith, one of the people that I interviewed um, in the book, The Great Civil Rights Hero uh, from Mississippi. And um, one of the things he said to me, he said, well, the Germans got their ass kicked, and we didn't. And of course, there's a way in which that's true. And one can say if there's any moral agreement in the world, it's that the Nazis committed, you know, the worst crimes in human history. Um, I'll agree with that. Um, And of course, since they were devastated uh, at the end of the war, there was some pressure on them from the outside to uh you know do something about their history although it was slow and faltering certainly in the west and i think that's a very important message for americans to learn we tend to assume that the crimes of the nazis were so awful that the minute the war was over they fell on their knees and begged for atonement that is not what happened at all uh, in West Germany, uh, in particular, they thought of themselves as the war's worst victims. And when I realized that, and it took me decades to realize this, because it's not something they like to talk about at all. You have to work to ferret it out. Um, I realized that the tropes with which uh, West Germans in the first decades after the war spoke about the war, you know, we lost a quarter of our territory and 7 million people were killed and our men were in POW camps if they survived at all or they were wounded and our cities were burned and our, you know, we were hungry, just barely alive. Maybe you'll catch the reference there. Um, And on top of it, the damn Yankees wanted to tell us it was all our fault. Yes. Um, And I suddenly realized they sound just like the defenders of the lost cause. Yep. Um, And from that, I think one can actually get a measure of hope, because if it turns out that even, you know, Nazis took a long time to acknowledge that they had some atoning to do, um, it's no wonder that those people who are asking, you know, for similar confrontation with our history in the U.S. are getting pushback. It's no wonder that we're having um, a cultural war over this because people tend, in the first instance, they like to think of their people as uh, heroes. If they can't think of them as heroes, they uh, think of them as victims. That's the next best thing. But, uh, you know, people focus on their own suffering. That's what people do. But what was historically unique was that the Germans made a further step, which is to say, yeah, we suffered uh, and it was rough, but other people suffered more and it was our fault. And, you know, so, so yes, the defeat played a role. There's some other, however, uh, things that sound more prosaic. You have no idea 
what kind of a media landscape we have here, uh, public media landscape. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm pleased to see podcasts like yours appearing to make up for the fact that, you know, most radio programs and almost all of television um, is commercial television. It does not go in for long-form discussions of any kind. And that's entirely different in Germany. In Germany, most of the media is public, and we all pay a little tax. The funny thing is that um, I don't actually have time. I don't watch much German television or radio, but I am so happy every <laughs> year to pay my little tax, which is not very much. Um, it's like, let's say, $100 a year, because I know that that ensures that we don't have Fox News, you know. So um, the German public is used to serious discussions in television, in radio, in the newspapers of a kind that we don't have enough outlets in the United States um, for doing. That's another thing that plays a role. Um, so what about a personal, personal confrontation? I remember reading recently a book called Germany and the Germans by John Arda in, from the 1990s. And he describes going to, I think it was at the University of Stuttgart, where they had uh, like the grandfathers and, 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 and grandmothers and, who had lived through the war uh, one-on-one with, with students uh, who, who, who grew up after the war. And there was very much a sort of generational tension how much of the sort of Vergangenheits Aufarbeitung was personal? And, and why haven't we had that in the United States? So that's a really good question. And of course, it depends whether the person you're confronting is your grandfather or your father. Um, in the late 60s, when um, people were confronting their parents who had served in the Wehrmacht or uh, you know, and certainly gone along with the Nazis, uh, even if they hadn't um, actually been members of the party. The confrontations were terrible, understandably. Um, and you had a sense of family structures being quite destroyed in many cases. The interesting thing, I felt like where the family uh, family structures weren't destroyed, I mean, I was once invited to... A, um, you know, spend a, a weekend in the country, somebody who said her parents were away and said, use our house. And um, the parents had, you know, pictures of the, the father in, in uniform <laughs> all over the house. And I left the next day. I, I can imagine. Yes. <laughs> is, you know, if, if this is what it means to have a nice relationship with your parents, I, I'm not sure that I'm 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 going for it. What, look, um, I think the f- so so there are people now talking about the ways in which um, people you know didn't confront their grandparents and and where the grandparent was in particular a Nazi criminal or even a, a serious Nazi that that has left um, real scars. One of the people I interviewed in the book, Alexandra Semft has written about uh, her grandfather, who was actually ex- one of the very few people executed as a war criminal, and you know talked about the way that that destroyed her family. Um, so, you know, the confrontations didn't happen at all for decades, and they they certainly happened 
uh, you know, it, there are sort of waves of these things. And of course, every family is personal. Look, I think the biggest problem in the United States is this hundred-year-old hole in our memory, as I talk about in the book, between the end of the Civil War and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I was fortunate. I, I grew up in, in the South, although I know you don't hear it. Um, my parents were from the North. But my mother was very active in the civil rights movement in Atlanta, so I'm kind of a civil rights kid. That was the, um, you know, that was the atmosphere that I grew up in. But nobody talked about history. Uh, everybody was much too focused on the present, you know, focused on getting rid of segregation. And, and you know, it was a time, Zachary, you're fortunate to have had your young political consciousness formed by, uh, you know, an African-American president of great integrity and intelligence. Uh, when I was young, I, we couldn't imagine it. We couldn't even imagine a black cabinet member at that point. So the focus was on the present and the future. People were not talking about the history. At least white people certainly weren't. And I rather think black people weren't either. They knew more of it, of course, than white people did, but uh, it wasn't a focus of attention. So we tended to think, uh, okay, there was slavery. Slavery was terrible, um, but then we fought a war in order to end it. That was still the line, you know, that I learned um, mostly. Um, and then there was Jim Crow. I think Jim Crow is a terrible expression. I'm on a you know minor campaign to stamp it out because it, it it's a euphemism. It prettifies what Brian Stevenson calls the age of racial terror, which I think is a much more accurate expression. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And the words Jim Crow allow us to think, okay, there were racial stereotypes, there was racist prejudice, but you know, it wasn't, it, we, we don't know about the web of uh, legal continuation of various f things that have been called neo-slavery, um, the way in which ordinary behavior, if carried out by African Americans, was criminalized, uh, the way in which there was actually a deliberate turn from, you know, thinking of African Americans as stupid and lazy, which was the stereotype during slavery days, to thinking of them as criminals, um, you know, all the way through, you know, redlining and the ways in which people uh, of color were barred from getting mortgages, were barred from getting social security. So, um, and, and, of course, in the background, lynching as a real instrument of terror to intimidate uh, people of color. So, you know, we, we tended to think that all of that was more or less, so we, you know, okay, it was, you know, it was too bad that there was segregation, but then we had the civil rights movement and it wiped it out. And, you know, our, our, Ignorance, and I, I must say my, myself very much, until 2015, until I, I started thinking about these questions, I was as ignorant 
as anybody else. And I know professors of American history who didn't know very much about of it course. either. Of course. You know? Right. Well, there is, for a long time, it wasn't even in our scholarship. I mean, you could you could be a scholar of of American history without addressing these issues until until you know thirty years ago. Right, right, and and then you had to be a scholar. You know, you had to be Eric Foner or you know somebody right. like you in order to address those issues. And you know, if it wasn't your field, uh, it didn't get into public discussion in the way that it is now. So I think that's the main reason why Americans have uh, have not examined our racist history, there's a second issue that I'm only going to mention because I know we don't have time to go into it. I think we are still living in a time where the Cold War has cast its shadow over American history, which is why great you know, civil rights activists like Paul Robeson is almost forgotten, which is why we don't talk about Hiroshima and we don't talk about Vietnam, but that's a question for a, a podcast in itself. Yeah. Um, so we also see, uh, you talked about this in your book a lot as well, um, later on, particularly in recent decades, an effort by Germans not only to talk about their past, but to make to take actions to atone for it, to accept refugees, and to um, to send aid to Israel and, and other such activities. Um, how, how, how big of a part of Vergangenheit's Alfarbeitung is this? And, and has it been applied in the United States? And, and how could it be? So very good question. I mean, let me start by saying that Vergangenheit's Aufarbeitung has, you know, it's it's not one thing. Um, it's not a, you know, a one-off vaccination, okay? Um, it involves, a, you know, constructing a different national narrative. But that itself is not just something to be done by historians, and it's not just something to be done in history books. It involves popular culture. Um, you know, it involves uh, movies, literature, songs, um, all of that stuff needs to be rethought of. Uh, I think reparations need to play a role, and they have uh, it certainly played a role in Germany uh, with reparations to Holocaust victims, reparations to the state of Israel. And here is something that Americans tend to forget or not ever to have known about. Um, the Wehrmacht laid waste to Poland and Russia and killed 14 million Slavic civilians. So East Germany paid a huge amount of reparations to uh, Poland and the Soviet Union as well. Um, so obviously where there's been damage and um you know again it's a it's uh it's a complicated subject the damage needs to be materially repaired if there are still people who need to be brought to justice they need to be brought to justice we need to think about the iconography of uh uh our cities as yes. i say in the book there is no hans wehrmacht uh in germany i mean i i just made that up as a right. Counterpart right. to Johnny Reb, uh, yes. what there are are uh, thousands of memorials to both victims and the few resistance heroes that there were. Um, all of that is part of Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. 
So, so Susan, this is such a, a powerful narrative that you put together here, and it, it is so so compelling because it's it's thoughtful, and you you draw out interviews with with major figures. You've mentioned Brian Stevenson and many others on the German side and the American side. Uh, we always like to close our podcast episode, Susan, with a forward-looking, uh, hopeful uh, denouement. Uh, what do you take from this about the possibilities going forward? I think Americans uh, are maybe at least a younger generation. It seems to me, and I find this certainly with my students, are much more open to talking about a lot of these issues than my students were even 10 years ago. Uh, so what what do you see as the positive pathway forward for us, uh, taking into account Count your analysis of, of historical memory and the uses and misuses of it? I see a lot of hope at the moment, but I think we're in a perilous time. Um, it surprises me to complain about polarization because it's such a centrist thing to do. And I am not a centrist. I'm a social democrat, and don't say it to anybody uh, who wants to hear it. I've always been on the left. But I think we need to be very, very careful in this moment. I agree with you that people are finally uh, in America connecting the violence which still uh, outrageously exists more towards people of color than uh, towards anyone else. That, that violence with the violence in our past and the need for a new narrative but I think it's extremely important that this be seen as a universalist project. I know the word universalism is, uh, you know, not very popular these days, but I'm making an argument to revive it. And I try and do that in the book. This is American history. This is not black history. Um, and it's very important, I think, that uh, white Americans not consider ourselves as allies, an ally is someone who is, uh, you know, has a temporary um, uh, alignment of interests with someone else, like the U.S. and uh, the Soviet Union did during World War II, right? And but right. it wasn't an alliance based on principle. I support Black Lives Matter. Um, not out of interest, but as a matter of principle, because I care about uh, universal human justice. And uh, I am part of, uh, you know, many people of many eth ethnic backgrounds who have always done so. Uh, Hannah Arendt, in her uh, very important book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, criticized the state of Israel because when they indicted Eichmann, uh, they did it, uh, they indicted him for crimes against the Jewish people. And she says he should have indicted, they should have been indicted for crimes against humanity. Right. And I think that's exactly right. And I think we need to see the crimes, the crimes against African Americans as crimes against humanity that should engage and enrage every decent American as we work to reconstruct a better country. Uh, that's so powerful, Susan, and uh, I loved how you closed the book in what you called in place of conclusions, because there is no conclusion to this story, where you talk about how, in your words, uh, I gave tribalism a try. <laughs> right. 
But then you say, and it, it, it surprised me. I had a little bit of whiplash at the end. I didn't expect that from you. <laughs> and then you said, uh, this book itself is offered as an exercise in universalism in the hope that understanding difference will help us to find shared souls. Zachary, this book obviously moved you. Uh, we read a lot together, but I think you really were moved by this. Uh, why did it move you? And do you think that, that Susan's plea for universalism uh, will resonate with your generation? Yeah, I, I think that, that it really resonated for me because it's, it's a very sort of, under, it's an understanding of American history and, and, and world history from a perspective that is, that is deeply intellectual and I think the, the most accurate depiction of history that we can see. And I think it's actually a very hopeful thing for uh, young Americans like myself because I think sometimes it's, it's a little easy to be put off by people who, who want to be all negative about American history or all positive about American history. And I think that this, this book and the message of this book offers a great framework for how we can understand our history from a realistic perspective. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, what Jeremy said also resonates with your poem. Um, you know, there isn't a conclusion. This is something, uh, you know, that's going to go on for a very long time. And it's a multi-generational project. So I think it's wonderful that the two of you are doing this together. Well, and, and reading your book, Susan, certainly felt not just like reading a, an exploration in uh, memory and history, but also, also an exploration in redemption. What, what you're talking about is the most hopeful thing, right? How, how democratic societies offer the possibility for redemption, because this is a theme of our podcast week in and week out. Democracy is about no finality. Democracy denies that there's an end to history. There's no there's no perfect template, uh, and we're not looking to create the perfect man and woman. We're looking to constantly remake ourselves for our times. It's a constant rebuilding, or in the Jewish tradition, lador vador, from generation to generation. And and uh, I think your book really captures that so well. Uh, thank you for joining us uh, from Berlin today for this discussion. Well, it's been a pleasure, and now I'll look up your podcast more often. <laughs> I hope. You you will. I, I hope will. you will. Yeah. And Zachary, thank you as always for a moving poem in two languages this time. Uh, you keep outdoing yourself every week. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. And I do want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Susan's book. It's now in paperback, Learning from the Germans, a title very easy to remember. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this episode of This is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.